the title for today's message is Unity and the Dearest Place on Earth. And we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 4 together. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its encouragement, its instruction to us. Lord, you clearly tell us that you've given this word to us. God breathes so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Well, Lord, would we be equipped then today? Would we be complete as we hear what you have to say on unity and the dearest place on earth? Lord, bless this time by your grace. Amen. You know, the church, as we saw last week, is biblically defined is without doubt the dearest place on earth. Together, when we gather, we're, we're a temple. In the Old Testament, the temple would be the place where people would go and meet with God. And yet in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, the, curtain, the temple curtain was torn in two. Now we can have full access to the very presence of God himself. And Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am will be with you. We're the temple. Together also we're a family. No longer aliens and strangers, but brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Together we're a body. We have a part to play because we're the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Jesus himself is the head of the body. He's the one that gives us direction and strength and energy and clarity. And yet we're his hands and feet with a part to play. And together, we're also his bride, as Ben started off this morning. You know, when you look at a groom's face on his wedding day, you see just a dim shadow of how Jesus feels about his bride, the local church. The local church, then, really is the dearest place on earth. And as the church stands in unity, it is then a beautiful thing. When we stand firm with one mind, with one heart, the one spirit striving side by side for faith in the gospel. It's clear that the church then is a beautiful, incredible thing before the Lord. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity together. When local churches come together and dwell in unity, it is a beautiful and incredible thing before the Lord. The local church, according to Mr. Spurgeon, is the dearest place on earth. And yet, here's the sobering and painful reality for each and every local church. Each and every dearest place on earth around the world. The sobering reality is this. For each and every one of us, we are always so, so vulnerable to disunity 
and therefore division. It's a sobering reality. And it's a sad reality. And it is a truthful reality. And here in Sovereign Grace, we're not immune to that. Because primarily, we're no different in makeup to every other dearest place on earth around the world. See, first and foremost, when churches come together, it really is when sinners say, I do, on a much larger scale, isn't it? Have you noticed that? When people get married, it's two sinners saying, I do, and they come off honeymoon and they're always arguing. You know, it's because the reality is we take ourselves with us. We think it's just going to be utopia, but we find, oh, I'm still sinful even in this marriage, and yes, it comes out. Well, in church life, that happens as well. The harsh reality of church life is for all of us, indwelling sin is a factor. Just like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Why is it that I keep doing the things that I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I know I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am! We're all like that, ultimately. There's all for all of us. Areas where we need, man, I've got to grow, but I'm struggling. Things that I should be doing that I'm not. It's called indwelling sin in the Bible. And we all struggle with it. And guess what? When churches then come together, we are on occasions on the end of each other's indwelling sin, aren't we? For all of us, at times in church life, we will be on the end of our brother's and sister's sin. But here's the reality. When that happens, when we are on the end of our brother's or sister's sin, we will also be very, very tempted to sin in response. See, the Bible's clear what to do when a brother or sister sins against us. It's crystal clear. It's not complicated. In Proverbs 19, verse 11, the writer says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. In church life, we're called by the grace of God that when we're on the end of somebody else's sin, to do all we can to overlook it. And that's to our glory. And yet there's obviously occasions when we're hurt and we're disappointed and we're affected and we just can't. We're aware, I need to deal with this. Well, Jesus tells us then how to do it. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 16. This is Jesus' words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. As given the nature of indwelling sin in family life, we are on occasions going to be the end of each other's sins. The Bible calls us first and foremost, see if you can overlook it. Okay, you can't? Okay, that's okay. Then go to your brother in grace and in love and talk to him about it. Do all you can to try and win them. And if that doesn't work, then take another brother or a sister with you and talk to him again. Seek to entreat them. Try and help them see what it is they're doing that's affecting you so much. But here's the problem. Bible's very clear, but when we are sinned against, when we are hurt by another, our temptation is to respond sinfully, to ignore both of those things and instead to do something else. And usually what occurs when we do something else, what we are tempted to do is harbor that hurt in our hearts. And you know what happens then? Whether we like it or not, we become bitter. That's what harboring it in our hearts really is. In chapter 4, verse 31, Paul talks about bitterness. 
Bitterness is an inner attitude of resentment. We're hurt by somebody else. We've been on the end of somebody else's sin and we're affected by it. Well, the Bible's clear we go to that brother. We seek to try and help them. But if we don't and we just instead harbor it, we grow bitter. And for so many of us at different times, we think, I think I'll be okay with that. I'll just ignore them for the rest of my life. I'll be fine as long as they never talk to me again. I'll be fine. But actually, we'll never be fine. Because as Paul tells us in chapter 4, verse 31, there's a sequence that happens there. When we grow bitter, it's like a fire that burns in our hearts, and it will invariably come out at some point. It will erupt from us at some point, sometimes in anger, sometimes in wrath, sometimes in clamor, sometimes in gossip or slander or accusation, sometimes even in malice. And what always tends to happen then in local church life is division and disunity and people moving away. Given the nature of indwelling sin, we are always vulnerable, even as the dearest place on earth, to disunity and therefore division. And in addition to that, we have an evil one, Satan himself, who is always at war with us. I would love to see nothing more in Sovereign Grace Church than disunity and division. John MacArthur says about it this way. He says, It is easy for believers, especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected, to be complacent and become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and in a kind of peace that is merely, merely the absence of conflict. Yet theirs is the victory and peace of the defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they're not engaged in the war. But God gives no deferments or exemptions for his people are at war and will continue to be until Christ returns. My friends, this is the reality of church life. We're at war all the time. There is an evil one who will do all he can to rip us apart. We are always going to be at war with Satan and we will continue to be until Christ returns. And Satan then, with all his power and his evil and his cunning, is warring against us. As he does, he employs all the weaponry he can to seek to destroy us, to blind us, to cast doubt in Sovereign Grace Church, to tempt us, to accuse us, to devour us, to bring us down and to tear us apart in the hope that one day there will be disunity and division in our church. And all the time he'll be there looking on. You were hurt and offended by somebody else. You failed to deal with it as Jesus called you to do. You got bitter. You got angry. You started to gossip, slander. People started moving away. My friends, we need to be wise. We need to be clear. And we desperately need to understand the Apostle Paul's words here in these verses. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesian church and indeed then themselves because he knows the stakes that are at stake. He understands it. He knows how incredible the church is. He knows how we were aliens and strangers. 
But now we're together as saints, members of the household of God. He knows you're a temple. You're being built together as a very dwelling place for God. He knows you're a family. Brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. He knows you're a bride. Part of the great bride of Christ that he will return to. But he also knows indwelling sin is a factor in the local church. And he knows Satan is real, which is why he talks about it in Ephesians 6. So he urges the Ephesian church, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, listen to his tone, urge you. I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you hear his urgency in his tone? He's aware how vulnerable this church is. He's aware how vulnerable we are today. And so this isn't just, hey, listen, if you can, it might be something to think about. No, I, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. But listen, be eager to maintain the unity. It's a calling on all our lives. And the question I want us to look at today then is simply this. How then do we do it? How do we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Seeing that this is so important as biblically defined, what does it look like for us as a local church to be, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, knowing we're vulnerable to indwelling sin, knowing we're vulnerable to the evil one? What does it look like? John, John Stott, in his Ephesians commentary, in this particular passage, makes reference to the words eager to. He says, eager to, that being a present participle, is a call for continuous, diligent activity. It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his physical strength, and his total attitude. The imperative mood found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude. No. Yours is the initiative. Do it now and mean it. Such are the overtones of verse 3. Isn't that provoking? I mean, we can be eager to do many things in our lives, can't we? I was thinking about it this week. We can be eager to get married. Really eager. We can be eager to, eager to move house because we just need a different property and the one that we've got isn't working out. We can be eager to get a better job. I just need to move on. We can be eager to go on holiday and book it. We can be eager to arrange a night out with our friends again. And yet what the Apostle Paul is trying to help us see is simply this. That if we are going to maintain the unity in this local church, if we are going to maintain the unity in Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, then we're going to need to be Eager to do it. Eager. Leaning in. Quickened in our heart. Continuous, diligent activity. And so, seeing the importance of this, seeing the value of this, seeing our vulnerabilities in this, how, how do we do it? How do we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, the Apostle Paul explains that to us in verse 2. These are not my ideas. They are God's ideas. 
He gives us four things, four character qualities that we're to quicken and cultivate in our lives if we are really going to be eager to maintain the unity. So what I love about the Apostle Paul. It says that he was a tent maker. I think he was a tent engineer. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this guy just thought like an engineer. He's like, okay, this is what you've got to do, and this is how you're going to do it. He's like that all the way through his letters. I love it. It's great for pastoral ministry because he doesn't leave you guessing. He tells you how you're going to do it. So how do we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How do we do it? Well, four points, and here's the first. Here's the first way we do it. We do it by walking together with all humility. Let's let that sink in a moment. That's a grand statement. He says it in verse 2, with all humility, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, that's a radical statement. See, herein lies the number one ingredient when it comes to our unity, and it's humility. But not just humility, note, all humility. Not just partial humility or some of humility or superficial humility. I'll smile at you, but I don't really feel it. No, to the Apostle Paul, all humility is necessary if you're going to be eager to maintain the unity. You know, that was a radical statement when it was written in first century Greco-Roman culture, which is what this was originally written to, that would have been a seriously wild and perplexing statement because humility was not a rated character quality of the day at all. If you said to somebody that you liked, you're just so humble, you would have deeply offended them because they hated that. To say you're humble, humility in this era of the life would be associated with servants, and slaves, and wimps. So if you go to somebody and say, oh, you're so humble, they'd be deeply offended with you. Because how dare you? And what do you mean I'm lowly like them? It wasn't a rated or valued character quality. And so they would have read this and thought, what is he on about? It would have been so deeply strange for them and perplexing to hear this. For in this era of time, what they championed were achievements, and property, and ownership, and ability. They would brag about how many slaves they had. This was the culture of the day. They bragged about what they could do, what they owned, who they really were. That was the cordial of the day. That was the speech of the day. They didn't want to be humble. And the truth is, the more I've thought about it, our world today isn't much different, is it? It's not. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, although humility is at the heart of the Christian character, no virtue is more foreign to the world's ways. The world exalts pride, not humility. Throughout history, fallen human nature has shunned humility and advocated pride. For the most part, humility has been looked on as weakness, something ignoble to be despised. So people unashamedly claim to be proud of their jobs, their accomplishments, their achievements with their children, and on and on. Society loves to recognize and praise those who have accomplished something outstanding. Ostentation, boasting, parading, and exalting are the world's stock in trade. It's true, isn't it? That's the stock in trade. You don't open the paper and then read story after story of, oh, they're just so humble. Emma, come and look, they're just so humble. No. It's ostentation, it's boasting, 
It's parading. It's exalting all the way through. We live in a profoundly me-centered world. And so you're taught at a very young age about my needs, my wants, my agendas, my rights. We teach people to stand on your rights. It's your rights. Our world screams that as if that should be the norm. We live in a world that says, listen, you put your mind to something, you can do anything you want. You can be anybody you want to be. Just got to work hard and go for it. And you need to fundamentally in your life look out for number one. No one else is going to look out for you. You need to look out for number one. The world exalts pride. It exalts individualism. It exalts looking after number one. And yet to Paul, if we are going to be eager to maintain the unity in the local church, then it's humility that we're going to need more than anything else. All humility. Humility then, that low disposition of heart towards God and towards others, which is what humility is. It's having a low disposition of heart towards God and towards others. That low disposition of heart that makes you realize, Lord, I'm, I'm nothing without you. You are everything to me. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. You are holy in every way. I am not. You should have abandoned me, but you didn't. Oh, Lord, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would come after a guy like me. And, Lord, those people in my local church, yeah, Lord, I want to consider them, as you called us to in the book of Philippians, I want to consider them to be more important than myself. Because, Lord, they are. It's amazing that I get to serve them. It's amazing that I get to be around them as my brothers and sisters. That's what humility is before the Lord. And to Paul, that is the number one ingredient needed to maintain the unity. John Stott says it this way. He says, in every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Oh, how true that is. Even more so in unity. See, Proverbs 13 verse 10 says, Pride only breeds quarrels. Do you understand that? When we're pride, when we're standing on our rights, looking after number one, it's all about me, me, church. We get proud. And then we get offended. And our pride only breeds quarrels. Whereas humility... Understanding who we are before the Lord and considering others more important than ourselves, that breeds unity in a local church. See, to be quite frank, after 16 years of pastoral ministry and having spent nearly all of my life in local church, every time I've seen disunity and division in a local church, I've been able to see pride. People hanging onto their rights. People shouting at one another. People being angry with one another. How dare you is usually a phrase that is used in those divisions. And yet wherever I've seen unity, humility has always also been present. A group of people that really love the Lord and really love each other and really want to prefer others and count one another more important than themselves. Pride then really is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And it's needed if we're going to be eager to maintain the unity. Now, I'm not going to do this for all the points, 
But given the importance of this, given the primacy of this, which is why Paul mentions it first and uses the word all humility, just want to briefly examine, so how do we cultivate humility then? If it's so darn important, how do we get it in our lives? Because if you're like me, you're a proud guy trying to grow in humility. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a natural disposition of all I want to do is serve others and consider others more important than myself. No, that's not a natural disposition at all. My natural disposition is, it's very hot in here. Is this going to be done soon? Because I want to go home and relax and be comfortable. (laughs) That's the natural disposition. It's, well, what about me? I'm getting hot. So how do we cultivate humility? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, buy and read C.J. Mahaney's book on humility called Humility. It's the best book on humility I've ever read in my life. It will help you and aid you. But three other things that I think may be able to help you. Number one, if you want to grow in humility, if you're a proud guy like me seeking to cultivate humility, here's three things I seek to adopt and are helping slowly but surely in my life. Number one, study and delight yourself in the attributes of God. Study and delight yourself in who God really is. See, when you look at the Lord and who He really is, when you study Him, And delight in Him, in His greatness, in His holiness, in His independence, in His omnipresence, in His omniscience, in His infiniteness. When you stop and you start to consider and study who God really is, humility will start to be what comes to you. Because you'll realize how darn small you really are. You know what I'm saying? When when you're on a plane and you just see the ocean all around you as far as you can see, you start to feel very small. Well, studying God's character has the same effect. I saw an advert a while ago. I don't even know what the advert was for, but it was clever because it was just this young lady and there was a camera above a young lady who was lying on a piece of grass. And then the camera just starts going up. And suddenly you can see the young lady. Oh, she's in her backyard and in her house. The camera keeps going up. You see her in a street. Then you see her in a town. Then you see her in a state and a country. The camera keeps going up. Now you can't even see the girl anymore. You just see the world. And the camera keeps going up. And you start to see the sun and the moon. And then you start to see our own solar system. And the camera keeps going up and you start to see the Milky Way. And then the camera keeps going up and you see the entirety of all the galaxies. And the whole point of it is, you know, we're a lot smaller than we think. When we study the greatness of God and the characters of God, it has that effect on our souls. Because you realize this is who he is. What am I on about thinking it's all about me? Of course it's not about me. I'm not the center of the universe. He is. I'm just a small, small part of it. Matthew Henry wonderfully said, The greatest and best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am who I am. But God says simply this, I am who I am. I love that. Everybody, every one of us has to say, I'm totally dependent upon the Lord to make me who I am. But God alone says, oh, I just, I am. I am who I am. Well, study the great I am. See him for who he really is. It will help you cultivate in humility in your life. Number two, study and delight yourself in the miracle of salvation. In particular, your salvation. Study it. See it for who it really is. Study God in His holiness, in His majesty, in His awe. Study the doctrine of sin and see who you really are before Him. 
Study then the doctrine of salvation. All that he's really done for you in and through Jesus Christ. Study Calvary, how he died for you and then rose again for you and how through salvation he forgave you. Study the fruits of salvation, forgiveness and adoption and redemption and reconciliation and the fact that heaven is your home. Study all these things because, again, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's hard to come into a room and be proud when you're aware before the Lord, i got nothing without him. It's hard to stand on your rights when you're aware, if he hadn't called my name, I wouldn't even be here. It's staggering I even get to know you, let alone anything else. Study and delight yourself in the miracle of salvation. Number three, preach the gospel to yourself daily, every day. See, quite simply, it's very hard to be proud when you stand at the foot of the cross. When you stand before Jesus on the cross, when you get up in the morning and you begin the day, Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, thank you that in all reality, you are on the cross for me. You had to do that for me. Lord, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be a Christian. Lord, if you hadn't died for me, I wouldn't be here. But Lord, if I hadn't been me, you wouldn't have had to die. You were there for me, for my sin. Martin Luther says, for we all carry his very nails in our pockets. We all carry the very nails that we crucified Jesus with in our pockets. Listen, when we spend time with the Lord in awareness of that, when we stand at the foot of the cross, it's very hard to come out of that room and then be quickly irritated with somebody else because who do you think you are? Because we've just spent time with the Lord and we're amazed who we are and yet how he's forgiven us and redeemed us, and adopted us. You're never going to be proud when you immerse yourself and come forth from the foot of the cross. And so, how do we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, number one, we do it by walking together with all humility. Now, that's not all. Number two, and the other points are shorter. It's your lucky day. Number two, by walking together with gentleness. He says there, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, gentleness, I always think, is a really interesting one. Jerry Bridges says this about gentleness. He says, perhaps no grace is less prayed for and less cultivated than gentleness. Well, in my estimation... The more I've thought about it, I think he's most likely right about that. Because gentleness, I think, more often than not, is considered just to be part of someone's natural disposition, isn't it? So, oh, they're just, oh, they're so gentle. Oh, that child. Oh, not so gentle, no. It's just a natural disposition. We just think of it, well, some people are gentle, some people are not. What has he got to do with me? I happen to be gentle, I happen to not be gentle. And yet, in all reality, gentleness, as biblically defined is actually a Christian virtue, a fruit of the Spirit given to us by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, for us to cultivate in our lives. Do you realize that? Because that makes a difference to things. See, Matthew chapter 11, it's the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus himself draws attention to one of his very own character qualities. It's the only time he does it. Jesus doesn't talk about his own character. But in Matthew 11, he does. 
And he's talking to them about, you know, all you who are heavily laden and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. And then he says this about himself. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Effectively gentle and humble. I'm gentle. Well, my friends, when Jesus died and then rose again and began to sit at the right hand of the Father, who did he send? Well, he sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And what did the Spirit of Jesus do when he came into your life? He gave you the fruits of the Spirit. What's one of those fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5.23, it is gentleness. So we can't say as Christians, well, I'm just not very gentle. It's not my personality. Well, that's unfortunate that it's not your personality. But since you became a Christian, Jesus dwells in your heart. And so now you can cry out to him for grace in this and he will help you be gentle. It's the work of the Spirit in your life. And my friends, if we are going to gather together and remain united as a church, gentleness is so important. It talks in the Bible about how we need to be easy to entreat. Are you easy to entreat? Is it easy for people to come and make a comment to you? Or try and point something out? When your spouse or your child comes to you with a few thoughts for the day, is your initial response, hey, I just want to be gentle. Hey, help me. Or is it, rah! The Bible, in the context of a local church, calls us to be gentle. My friends, that doesn't mean then that when someone is coming to us with an attitude or a conversation that could affect the expression or demonstration of the unity of the local church, that we just then, in the spirit of gentleness, give them a hug and say nothing. That's not what Paul's calling us to do here. Because Paul also calls calls us to speak the truth in love. Where somebody's coming to us with an expression or with an anger or with an attitude that could cost the unity of the church, we're called to speak the truth in love to them. But what we are called to do as we speak that truth is what? We're called to do it gently, with gentleness, with humility and gentleness. But that's not all. That's not the only thing we are called to do as we eagerly maintain the unity. Number three, how do we do it? Well, number three, by walking together with patience. Oh, this is provoking, is it not? Are you squirming just because of the heat or is it the words as well? Because I'm squirming not just because of the heat, but because of the words. It says here, with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. <laughs> I mean, what Paul is basically getting at here is our behavior response to someone when we are wronged or sinned against or hurt by them. When we are wronged or sinned against or hurt by them, our behavior response, Paul tells us, needs to be with patience. (laughs) Is that just a challenge for me, or can you relate to that as well? Because when somebody sins against me, and they hurt me, my initial reaction isn't, oh, well, let's consider this. Let's be humble, gentle, and let's just be very patient with all things. No, that is not my response to them. That is not my initial heart response when somebody has hurt me. See, we call, in our lives, whether we like it or not, we all tend to either fight or flight, don't we? It's just a reality. Somebody hurts us, we feel they're going after us, we've been on the end of their sin, we either want to fight them or we want to flight. So we either want to take them on and say, how dare you, what do you mean? 
How dare you do this to me? Don't you know how I've loved you? I've sought to care for you? How dare you say that about me? And you want to fight him? You want to go toe-to-toe with him? With patience? Nah, I just want to go for him. And somebody else has a temptation then to flight. Instead, they don't want to fight them. They just want to disappear and never talk to them again. Both are unbiblical responses. Because if we fight them without patience, we're negating this scripture. But if we flight, all too quickly that becomes bitterness in our heart. And whether we like it or not, that will erupt at some point. Even the most quietest of people, over time, boom! And you look and think, how did that happen? Well, because they got bitter. They failed to deal with things biblically. And now you have it. See, the Apostle Paul tells us, listen, eager to maintain the unity with all humility and gentleness. And, oh, listen, with patience. You're going to have to be patient. Real patient. See, my friends, once again, Paul is not saying here that having been sinned against then, we should never faithfully and graciously be willing to go to someone and show them their sin. We should. When we're hurt or when we're sinned against, we should try and overlook it. But if we can't, we should humbly and gently and faithfully as a brother go to them. Say, hey, listen, can I talk to you? Because I've been hurt by what's taken place. We should do that. And Paul isn't saying we shouldn't. See, sometimes, honestly, my friends, I think one of the things, if I'm completely honest about Australian culture, one of the things in Australian culture is I think people struggle to do that massively. British people complain a lot, so they don't find it as hard to do that. We have our own challenges. So British, in British culture, if you said to somebody, hey, listen, has what I've done offended you in any way? If they had been offended, they'd say, yeah, to be honest, it has. What I've found in Australian culture, just being completely honest with you, again and again and again, is when you say to an Australian, is what I've done offended you in any way? And they go, no. That doesn't always mean no. It doesn't, honestly. In British culture, we have a, because of our pride, we complain. I think in Australian culture, because of our pride, we lie. They've asked us a question. And we've said no, but actually, the answer was yes. My friends, we must go to people and speak the truth in love. We must. But what Paul is trying to help us see is as we do that, we must do that not in the spirit of anger or bitterness or retaliation. I need to speak to you because you're having it. No. We need to go to them with humbleness and gentleness and truthfulness, and patience. My friends, given a family this large, as large as Sovereign Grace Church, you will have the chance and opportunity, most likely to apply this message before the week is out. You will. People sin against you. It will happen. Listen, when someone, we're going to get lots of opportunities to do this. There's going to be times when people sin against us. And then we genuinely seek to go and be with them and talk to them and try and help them see it. And they can't meet with you immediately on the hour. 
that's going to be a chance for you to apply this word patience. Be patient. They're going to meet with you, but they just can't do it right now. There's also going to be other opportunities when we do go to somebody and we say, listen, you've hurt me and I need to make you aware. What you said there, you probably didn't mean it that way, but this is how I heard it. I mean, I was really affected by that. Okay, that, that's good. We need to talk like that. But here's what sometimes happens. You address somebody and you help them see, brother, when you said that, I think it was actually a lie because you did something different. And they then say to you, oh, brother, you're right. I lied. Would you forgive me? Here's the temptation we're going to face. If within an hour they haven't completely turned and changed around their lives, we're going to look and go, see, you haven't changed. <laughs> I did everything right. I was gentle. I was humble. I was patient. You've done it again. <laughs> Listen, change takes a long time. It just does. It takes a long time. Just because we've addressed somebody in their sin doesn't mean straight away they go, I've seen the light and completely changed their heart and never do it again. It's a challenge. So that isn't condone not changing when people have brought things to our attention. We need to do all we can to change for the glory of the Lord. But it is just facing a reality that sometimes change takes time. In truth, it takes a long time. So we need to be patient, even when we're addressing people and they don't seem to be changing how we would want them to change. Listen, if that happens to you, if you are addressing somebody and they don't seem to immediately and quickly change, here's what I want you to remember in that moment. How patient has God been with you? How many times has the Holy Spirit brought things to your attention and then you have not changed immediately? In fact, the change is still in process after weeks and months and even years. Well, would we not then point the finger at other people to say, why have you not changed? Change takes time. So if we're going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we need to do it with all humility and gentleness and with patience. And finally, number four, We do it by bearing with one another in love. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Listen, if we are going to be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace, then, my friends, we are going to need to bear with one another in love. That's why it's here. The answer to church life is not to split up into a thousand different services on preferences. You never need to bear with one another then. You just all get your preferences. No, we're to call to unite as family and to bear with one another in those differences. See, the reality is in family life, there are so many things that aren't sin issues at all. They're not. They're just preference issues. And life issues that we aren't called to adjust in one another, but instead we're simply to bear with one another in. And there's plenty of them out there, okay? Not everything is sin. Some things are just life and preferences. And my friends, we all have them, do we not? We all have our funny little ways, our funny little preferences. We all do it. I remember at my old church, at Christ Church in Wales, 
And there was this guy, whenever I talked to him, he just liked to get really close, sort of, sort of there. And, and, and so you're talking to him, and he would just get so close. And you would just keep walking away, hoping that he'd come. And all he would do is lean in more. And so you felt like you're doing the tango with this bloke. You know, and it would be all right until you got against the wall, and then you've had it. You know, it was just one of these awkward personalities. You just think, they're, they're following me around. That's not sin. But it's kind of awkward. And we've all been to dinner or lunch with people that unfortunately seem to eat with their mouth open on red alert. You know, you know what I mean? And you're talking to them, and you and, and, and they've got a question for you, but you can't, you can't even hear what they're saying because all you can see is their mouth doing a food impression of like a, a dryer at this moment with the door open because there's this food that's just going round and round. And then you notice, I can't even hear the question because that noise is so loud. We, we've all been on the end of that. We've all been around that. Some of us will warm and, and be attracted to loud people. Oh, we'll enjoy them. We find an energy because they're just, they're just loud, man. They're passionate. I love being with them. Whereas for other people, they're just like, oh, they're so loud. I mean, have they just got a PA attached to their mouth? Is there a microphone in there? I mean, what's their problem? Well, people don't like that at all. Other people will be like, I just, oh, I just love it when we just come and we're quiet. And that person, they just speak so precisely and so quietly. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And there'll be other people that go, not really. They're just so quiet. They don't really seem to say anything. I don't really understand where they're coming from or things. It just sounds so quiet. My friends, for each of those things, they are not things to be addressed. Each of those things, they're things to be bared with. Sovereign Grace, welcome to family life. I have five children. We have this in a microcosm in our house. You come to church, we just have it with 250 people instead. This is church life. The answer isn't not to split all our life groups up on preferences. No. The answer is to do exactly what we're doing and then call you by the grace of God to, hey, hey, bear with one another in love. With all humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Because as you do that, you'll bring glory to God and you in turn will become more like Christ. And my friends, in all reality, just to at least make you smile, you need to understand that for all those individuals that you think you are so amazing with bearing with one another with them, because they do things that you find tempting and irritating, here's the reality. They are bearing with you. Okay, each and every week, they're bearing with you. You're doing things that are irritating them and challenging them. So pray for them, aware that you're bearing with them, but they are probably bearing with you. My friends, the local church really is the dearest place on earth. Together we're a temple, we're a family, we're a body, we're a bride. And yet in all sobering reality, the dearest place on earth is always a place where we are so, so vulnerable to disunity and division. Given the reality of indwelling sin in all our hearts, given the reality of the evil one, of Satan himself and his keen desire to destroy, we will always be vulnerable to this. And so I want to encourage you and urge you then, my friends, would we be eager, eager, leaning in to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Would we walk together with all humility, 
Humility before the Lord and humility before others, counting others more significant than ourselves. Would we walk together with gentleness, where that our tone matters in this moment. Walking together with all patience, aware that people don't change momentarily. It's usually a process over time, and we need to be patient. And aware that in family life, there's just going to be a load of things that we need to bear with one another in. And by God's grace then, imperfect though it is, in unity, may this always be the dearest place on earth to us. Amen. Listen, rather than sing a song because you guys are going to melt, I want you to stand together and I just want to pray for us as a church. This is our family. These are the people. They're not faceless. These are the people that we're called to eagerly maintain the unity with. And so, Father, we look to you for grace. Lord, this is a high and holy calling on our lives, and even to address it is a sobering moment for us. Because we're aware how vulnerable we are. How vulnerable our hearts are to indwelling sin and then bitterness and anger and wrath and malice. And we are aware that there is one even now surrounding us who is eager to devour Sovereign Grace Church. One who hates the reality of us being a a bride and a temple and a body and a family. Who hates and detests that. And wants to do all he can then to rip us apart. Lord, would you help us as individuals not to allow Satan to have a foothold in our lives on these issues. Help us to stand together with one mind and one heart and one spirit. And help us to strive side by side, firm in the faith and in the gospel of your Son. And Lord, would you help us then? Would you continue to quicken our hearts to where we may need to grow in these things? Help us to cultivate each of these things. And would we truly then stand together in the dearest place on earth? Help us, Lord, by your grace. Amen.